Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. John 6 tonight from uh, 25 onwards. Uh, and this is the turning point, and perhaps it'll be a turning point for us tonight as well. So let's pray that perhaps God will do something really special in our hearts tonight. Father, may this word that you've given us tonight be a turning point in our lives. May you speak to us freshly and challenge us newly tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in John's Gospel, this is the turning point, chapter 6. It sits right in the middle of Jesus' public ministry from 1 through to 12 before the upper room where he's with his disciples until his arrest. And this is the turning point. And it's a turning point because the crowds keep finding Jesus. Uh, Even as we start this reading tonight, it says when they found him on the other side of the lake. All through John's Gospel, people have been finding him. They've been looking for him and finding him. Probably not for the right reason most of the time. He's like a magnet to the crowds, Jesus. Hungry people find him. Sick people find him. People wanting to see powerful works find him. Thousands of people find him. They find Jesus. They look for Jesus. And when he goes somewhere, they go after him. In John chapter 1, at the very beginning of the gospel, Andrew finds Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. People find Jesus. They look for Jesus. The question is, what are they looking for? And what will they find when they find him? That's John's question throughout the book. And in 627, uh, we've got a lovely phrase which says, that Jesus is the real deal, when they find him, they will find the one on whom God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I love that image, which I think is quite fresh here in John. Jesus has been stamped, as it were. He has been testified to. He has been approved. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the king. He is God's witness. He has God's sign of approval. So what Jesus says and does can be trusted. And in this passage, Jesus says a lot. Often when we read scripture, it seems as though we would long for more from Jesus. Sometimes we have quite small portions of him speaking. But in this passage... He is verbose. Uh, Of the text before us tonight, 33 out of 47 verses are Jesus talking. It's almost as though he has decided enough of this finding me. Let me tell you who I really am and then you make an informed decision. 
Truly, truly, I tell you, he says four times in this passage. Jesus is talking. Jesus is testing. John is asking, will you trust him? Jesus is revealing. Jesus is provoking. The question is, do you still want to be his disciple? He's a prophet. He's a storyteller. He's an artist. And the canvas on which he paints in John 6 is the canvas of the Exodus. It's the stage on which Jesus works in John 6. The drama of Passover, Moses, plagues, Exodus, promised land. Here is Jesus, as it were, retelling the great story of Israel's freedom. It's a Passover time in 6.4, at the beginning of chapter 6. John tells us this is a Passover time. There are three Passovers in John. One is in chapter 2, this one here. And 12 months from now, Jesus will be arrested and crucified. That's the third Passover. So there's three Passovers, and this is the second one. And in John 6.30, guess what the crowds are asking for? A sign, another one. In 6.30, they say, look, what sign will you give us? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. What about you? What will you do? It's almost as though they're saying to him, can you top that? Can you do something greater than that, more impressive than that? 38 years of food plus from heaven. Can you better that? Are you better than Moses? Well, from 6.32 to the end of the passage... Jesus is saying, I am greater than anything you've ever seen or known before because the seal of approval is on me. This is in keeping with the Father's witness, the Spirit's witness, the Baptist's witness, the sign's witness. And now he's going to say, look, I am greater. Number one is, I'm greater than Moses. And just to clarify, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. Moses is not that great. And not only that, but I've come from heaven and Moses didn't. And I'm going back to heaven. I'm the son of God and Moses didn't. And I know my father in ways Moses could not imagine. Because I'm God's son and I've seen the father. And Moses has never seen the father like I have. And God's work is actually to believe in me. Moses led you for 40 years. Believe in me and I'll lead you forever. I'm greater than Moses. And if Moses had been there, he would have been nodding vigorously, joyfully and in agreement. He's greater than me, Moses would have said. Jesus is greater than Moses. And secondly, from 30 onwards, Jesus says, and I'm, by the way, greater than the manna from heaven. Uh, manna is a word in the Hebrew text which means, what is it? Uh, it was not known, it was new, it was unusual, it tasted like honey wafers, and God provided it for so many years. But it was always sort of obscure. Jesus, the true bread, verse 32, is going to name himself, I am the bread of life, and it's the first of seven I am's in the book. 
I am is what God said of himself back in Exodus 3, verse 14, when he told Moses his name. I am who I am. A mysterious name that Jesus now fleshes out. I, I am, Jesus says, the bread of life. I am, secondly, the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. For the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Here's Jesus just saying, let me tell you, I am all these things that you can see and touch and experience. I'm bringing heaven to earth. I'm revealing God. I'm making God known. The great I am of Exodus 3. I am that person. Jesus asserts in 651, whoever eats this bread... The bread that I am will live forever. I am greater than manna. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than manna. Jesus does greater signs than Moses. Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people with five little loaves and two small fish. And last time in John 6, in the first part of the chapter we read that Jesus doesn't part waters and go through the sea on dry ground. He walks across the top. He walks through the storm. He tames the chaos. He doesn't need solid ground on which to walk. Jesus walks over the water, on the water, through the storm. He's greater than Moses. He has greater signs than Moses. He's a greater exodus than Moses. He's greater than the manna. He's the greatest. He reworks the Exodus story, and at every point, he's greater. But then in 651, Jesus scandalously tells his listeners something that they can't handle when he starts using the language of his flesh and his blood. So in 651, he says, Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and this bread is my flesh. My flesh. And then, as it were, to baffle and challenge and surprise, and I think quite deliberately divide the crowd, he does what is almost unthinkable. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood that I am, you will have no life. Then he says it again. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. Then he says it again. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And Then he says it again. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He uses the word flesh five times. He uses the word blood four times. It's a hard saying. The people listening to him on that day are grumbling now and questioning. How can he say this? The crowd divides. Some of the disciples leave. And I imagine Jesus has a grim smile on his face as finally perhaps the crowds are getting it. This is why they should follow him. Because he's going to offer his flesh and his blood 
they're going to eat and drink it. Interestingly for John, there's two different words that he uses for eat. The NIV doesn't give us the distinction. But on four times in 654, 56, 57 and 58, he doesn't just use the normal word for eat. He uses a word which some of the commentators translate munch, chew on, enjoy, feast, succulent, feed. Think of a juicy pizza or a chicken or something that's just delightful. Jesus is using a word here which says, you need to feast on me. You need to chew it over. You need to munch and crunch me. It's colourful. Why is he speaking about his flesh and his blood and eating and drinking? Well, here's what I understand. Everyone wants a greater Moses who sets people free from tyrants. Everyone wants signs and wonders. Everyone wants their bellies full of food. Everyone is attracted to a person who has the power to walk across water. Everyone wants a greater Moses, a greater than manna, a living bread. They're all images of the Exodus so far. But now Jesus is teaching these crowds perhaps one of the forgotten images of the Exodus. And that is, it begins with slaughtering a Passover lamb. It begins with killing a lamb or a kid and spilling and shedding its blood and eating its flesh. It begins with a sacrifice. It begins with something that covers sin. And I believe that Jesus is taking the forgotten image of the Passover and Exodus and he's saying, yes, I'm a greater Moses. Yes, I'm a greater than manna. Yes, I do greater signs and wonders. Yes, I can walk on water. Yes, I'm powerful to do signs and wonders. But you know what? I'm also a greater lamb. I'm a greater sacrifice. I'm a greater gift for sin. I'm a greater offering. And if you don't drink and eat my flesh and blood, you can have no part of me. This is fully in keeping with with John's gospel. At the beginning of John, John the Baptist names Jesus when he sees him and he says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the lamb, he says. This is the lamb. And I think Isaiah 53 is on his mind and other passages. But here is Jesus saying, if you really want to be my disciple, join me in my sacrifice. Everybody wants a lion. Who wants to follow a lamb? Everybody wants a king who overpowers enemies. Who wants to follow a king who empowers his enemies with love? Everybody wants a Moses or a David who doesn't kill his enemies. Jesus says, I'm going to give my life for my enemies. 
He's the servant king who gives himself to save and to rescue. Do you want to follow the king who is a lamb? That's what Jesus is asking, I think. He's turned it all upside down. He's taken the Exodus story and he's taken perhaps the forgotten part of it. It begins with a sacrifice. It begins with something that covers sin. It begins with a lamb. In chapter 4, the Samaritans have already decided, at least in the village of Sychar, that he is the saviour of the world, not just Israel. And now I think Jesus is teaching these Jews, and I am a sacrificial lamb, not just for Israel, but for all people. Your enemies, Egyptians, Romans, Greeks, Jews, I am the saviour of the world and I will do that by giving my life away. In chapter 12 he talks about a seed falling into the ground and dying before it produces fruit. Do you really want to join Jesus on that kind of mission? A mission of sacrificial love for people of all nations? Do you really want your king to be a lamb? That's his question. Well, in 660 to 71, people turn back now. He's not just the signs and wonders guy. He's not just the fill your belly guy. He's not just the king who defeats enemies and walks on water type person. He's actually a loving, sacrificial lamb. Some turn back. This is not what they came for. This is not what they wanted. Some will betray him, Judas particularly, from among the twelve. And Peter will affirm on behalf of the twelve, I hope the words that are in our hearts tonight. He says of Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. In John's account of Jesus, to eat his flesh and drink his blood is just another way of saying, believe in him, participate in him, be joined with him. And it's a great night for us to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in a little while. It's a way of saying that to be a disciple is to accept Jesus as your sacrifice, dealing with your sins and God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. So celebrate him like a great feast. Become like him. We've minimised belief or faith to a head thing, a rational idea. We sang that beautiful confession earlier tonight. But the scriptures won't have anything of that. To believe in Jesus is to eat him. It's to be in him and him in us. That's God's work. And Jesus assures his listeners throughout this passage that all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Complete security complete guidance and provision and love following the king who is 
a lamb. I imagine on that day that for disciples of this rabbi, this was a turning point. He's offering them more than instruction. He's not just saying, I'll teach you. He's saying, I'll be in you. And later in John, we'll have the language of the Holy Spirit. I will indwell you. You can indwell me if you want to be my disciple. I will come and live in your heart. No rabbi could say that except Jesus. But for Jews who had read Old Testament scripture, for the Son of God to be using this kind of language is remarkable. To say that the high and holy creator, the one who made mountains quake for Moses, who appeared in pillars of fire and cloud, who was fearful and awesome, to say, as Jesus says here, I invite you into an intimate relationship with God, like eating and drinking, like chewing and munching, like swallowing and ingesting, like a feast. To love Jesus voraciously. How can you do that with a holy God? How can you do that with a God like Moses knew in Exodus? This is an invitation to intimacy of a kind which is remarkable. To love, to friendship, to a God who has come down to indwell his people. It changes everything about faith if Jesus says, I want you to join me on that kind of mission. A mission of liberating, a mission of love, a mission of sacrifice, a mission of generosity, a mission of giving. And tonight we've heard that fleshed out with our prayers for Alawa, for example and Bibles for Indigenous communities, and support and prayer for people in poverty and under tyranny, for Christians who are going to those places, joining Jesus in such a mission. There's one very explicit place in Scripture where Paul takes the idea of Jesus being our Passover, and he applies it this way. He says to the church in Corinth, you're boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, if you understand that Jesus has died for you, that he is your Passover sacrifice, then you will throw off the wicked ways in which you used to live and put on sincerity and truth with each other. It changes the way we live. No boasting. No malice, nothing of the old life, 
but unleavened bread of sincerity and truth because Jesus is our Passover. I'm excited by John 6 because of this invitation to share in such a mission. It looks outwards to a world where increasingly we're hearing that the biggest problem around the world is loneliness and anxiety. People don't have intimate relationships. They don't know that they're loved. They have no community of generosity. The church is that. For us, I trust, for Springwood, for the people around us, the church bears witness to a king who is a lamb, who gives his life that people might live forever. In Revelation, we read that the Lion of Judah is the Lamb who opens the scroll. He holds the future in his hands. The universe is in good shape. It's under the governance of a king who loves, who sacrifices, who gives himself. But in John 6, people turned away. They didn't want that. They wanted signs and wonders. They wanted power and victory. And Jesus gives them something completely other than that in his sacrifice and love. It was a turning point in John 6. May it be a turning point in our lives and our contentment to serve the Lord in the gospel of crucifixion and resurrection. Let's pray and then we're going to share the Lord's Supper as a statement tonight of our participation in this mission of the Lamb. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Passover. We thank you that because of him we can put off the malice, the wickedness, the old ways and put on sincerity and truth and love. And we pray that the turning point for us might be contentment tonight, that that's what Jesus is on about. It might be a greater commitment to giving, caring, sharing, to reaching out to a world where people are lonely and anxious. But Father, help us to love Jesus, the bread of life, Jesus who gives his flesh and blood for the life of the world. And may we participate in that intimate relationship with you, Father God, through your spirit. And then with each other in the church, as friends, as those who live with sincerity and truth, who care for each other as brothers and sisters in the family of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.